0: We're at a really interesting time in race relations here in America, and with us to discuss what's going on, particularly just this week uh, with trials in Minneapolis and in Washington, is Dr. Ray Sean Ray, a David Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He's also a professor of sociology and executive director at the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland College Park, just up the road from where we are in D.C. Dr. Ray, welcome to political theater. Thank you for having me. So, uh, I mean, th- this week, I mean, we, we have we have spent the last year in a very um, contentious environment uh, since uh, the, the, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, the, the trial of the uh, police officer uh, who was videotaped, uh, you know, stepping on his neck, uh, uh, kneeling on his neck for the nine minutes uh, is underway right now uh, in, in this week as we speak. Uh, there is another killing uh, of, of a black man in a suburb of Minneapolis uh, by a police officer uh, just in a nearby suburb of Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center. And we have uh, you know just a lot of political debate in Congress and the White House uh, about race relations. President Joe Biden has made it a big part of of his campaign, uh, he was buoyed by specifically by Black voters uh, in in South Carolina. That's the, sort of what started his rebound in his political campaign, uh, and he you know he, he just met uh, this week with the Congressional Black Caucus uh, as leaders uh, at the White House. Um, let's let's talk. Let let's start. Let's start broad and work our way in. Um, you know we are we are still within you know just a couple of months of Biden taking office. and obviously, uh, you know the comparisons to his predecessor couldn't be <laughs> the contrast couldn't be greater. But how is Biden as a president uh, dealing with some of these 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 issues that we have grappled with as a country for centuries, but also these crises that we see right now, you think?
1: Yeah, great question. Well, thank you for having me on. I mean, I think that President Biden has done an admirable, admirable job, to say the least. I mean, in less than 100 days, the speed at which he's moved forward with uh, policies to create racial equity and to also correct for past wrongs, not just for Black Americans, but for Asian Americans, for Latinos. Um, of course, he still, I think, he ha- has some ways to go and is trying to figure out how to address immigration, but as far as what's happening uh, domestically, particularly around uh, hate crimes, particularly dealing with racial discrimination and even policing, um, I think that he's moved at warp speed in ways that people didn't think would be the case. And I, and I have thoughts on, on why I think he's moved this fast. If you go back to the first two years of the Obama administration when he was vice president, of course, he spent a lot of time in the Senate Before that, um, there were some things they were trying to get through and they were uh, aiming to really compromise. And while, of course, Biden is is extremely open to compromising, I mean, he's been a compromiser in a sense throughout his career. And I think that's something that's been positive. Um, And he's met with Republicans, groups of them, particularly at least 10 of them, trying to suggest that Democrats or or at least his administration are really trying to, you know, not necessarily have to just bust the filibuster, so to speak. But um, but I think he's moved at warp speed because he's realized that uh, if, if history tells us something in 2022, um, the Senate will prob- may, may become even more Republican and the Democrats may lose some seats in the House. So he realizes that he has 24 months, essentially, to try to really progress our country um, to something that will last for generations. Right, and I, I
0: I agree with you because I I feel like the you know the, the Biden has this sort of reputation as being this you know statesman, a creature of the Senate. You know, he knows the place in and out, and so forth. Uh, and he he's an institutionalist, but you know at at, at 78 years old you know he's, he's got to know that he doesn't have you know a lot of time to accomplish what he wants to uh as president I mean you get either you know uh you know a, a four-year term or or possibly eight uh or you know sometimes you know you're impeached or you know things happen so he he does seem to be in a hurry uh in in a way that Suggests that he knows, as you said, that things may change in 2022 with the elections, and this is the time to, you know, just really hit the accelerator.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when it comes to race, I think you know, part of him being a statesman and an institutionalist, as you frame it, um, is also part of knowing history, and part of what he knows is if we go back in history on race, executive orders matter immensely. um, Periods of massive social unrest when we're in social movements. It's the time to strike for racial equity. So he realizes where he's at in history. He realizes that if we go back to the end of slavery and the end of the Civil War, it was Abraham Lincoln's pen that created the Emancipation Proclamation. He knows that it was John F. Kennedy's pen that created affirmative action. And then of course. Uh, We had the Civil Rights Act, we had the Voting Rights Act, and then we had the Fair Housing Act, all in the 60s, pretty much under Kennedy and then, of course, Lyndon Johnson. So Biden realizes where his place is in history. I think he realizes it a lot better than other people. He realizes that he was the vice president of the first black president, and now he is the president of not only the first black vice president, but the first woman as well, um, of Asian descent, and of course, Barack Obama being biracial. So his history here, not just in terms of the representation of who he has ran uh, large political campaigns with, but then also his ability to stand up for the people who put him in office. And that's something that Biden has always done. That's part of him being a statesman and an institutionalist is that he represents the people who put him in office. And this is what people who put him in office want to see.
0: And let's let's talk about that, you know. It, it, I mean, specifically he um as as you mentioned sort of at the top, um, you know, it was it was South Carolina and particularly you know African American voters. You know who who put his who righted his campaign, which was flagging. You know he he did not do well in the first few states in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, um, and and South Carolina put him on the road. And specifically Jim Clyburn, who's the majority whip in the uh, in the House of Representatives, and a you know a, a longtime civil rights figure. Um, you know who who helped you know engineer that in in South Carolina. But it more than it seems to me that there's more than just that he was Obama's vice president too, that he, there is, um, I don't know whether it's an empathy or it's something that he, some way that he connects to, to people, but there, there, there seems to be a connection to, to African-Americans that is, that is just so like rock solid. And I, I, it seems to be more than just his, his history with Obama is, or am I reading that wrong? You think?
1: Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I mean, I think it's empathy. I think it's also equity. You know, I think deep down, I think he's just a good person. <laughs> Anybody who is a good person, similar to the work he's done uh, for Violence Against Women Act and things related to marriage equality, he's just a good person. Like he is, he has advanced equity across um, a wave of issues that uh, that have divided America. And you know, and if people really listen to him, like when he was running in Delaware. as a a senator, he would talk about the meetings he would have with the Black community, whether that be about education or about housing. He deeply understands those things. And in South Carolina, yes, Representative Clyburn, I mean, by far, when he came out and endorsed Biden, I mean, that was part of it. The other part as well, though, is that after the Mother Emanuel Amy Church massacre, where Dylan Roof walked into um, a Black African Methodist Episcopal church and killed nine parishioners after they had welcomed him, prayed with him and had Bible study with him. After the service um, and people came down and it was big hoopla and it was a lot of media attention. Biden stayed to actually stay at the Sunday service the following day. He didn't have to do that. He did that because I think he's just a person who understands grief and pain, particularly with his own biography. And when you're black in America, that is something you deeply understand, either within your family or someone who could easily be your family. So I think that empathy is something that is deep seated. It's not just sympathy. You know, there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. And part of his empathy is really understanding what it means to lose someone or lose something extremely close to you. And I think that's part of, in addition to him being a good, you know, politician. Is what makes him an even better politician is that he understands that loss and he aims to prevent that from happening to other people.
0: I'm not discounting the uh, the, the power that a, that a law has to say like you know these are this is your right and we're going to enforce it. But there's also there it, it seems to me I, I was I was watching. Um, you know Trevor Noah uh, last night and and he had this monologue about what happened to Dante White, the the man who was killed in in Brooklyn Center uh, earlier this week, and said that the like no matter what laws we pass, I mean, the the reason this keeps happening is that cops think that they're going to get away with it. So aside from, the policing legislation, which the House has passed and and which you know is is uh, you know awaiting action in the Senate, um, we hear that a lot. Awaiting action in the Senate. <laughs> um, aside from that, aside from making sure that people have have access to voting uh, and, uh, and and so forth, what what ha- what has to happen culturally? I mean, is it is it something as important as just as you said, like showing empathy? Like it seems like there is a a broader cultural change that we need to. So that an air freshener doesn't set off, you know, uh, it doesn't become an excuse for shooting somebody. <laughs> and I'm, I'm referring to the the reason that, you know, was given for pulling over Dante White.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I mean, I've studied policing for over a decade. And, I, you know, at the University of Maryland, where I direct the lab for applied social science research, we have a virtual reality training program for law enforcement. And we've had thousands of what we've worked with thousands of officers, train them, have them go through our program. And I mean, unfortunately, racial racial bias, either implicitly or explicitly, um, continues to be a large part of policing. And we know that from an air freshener, like with Dante Wright, to uh, dark tinted windows, like the lieutenant in Virginia, that these are justifications to pull over Black people oftentimes, profile them, search them, harass them, and oftentimes brutalize them. And, uh, you know, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passing the House is huge. Um, when I think about what Biden has done, there are a couple of other things that um, that I think people are paying attention to, but maybe not in the way that that I do, given what I given what my research focuses on. The way that he's put together the Department of Justice is something we've never seen before. Not only is it racial, gender And religious diversity in a way that we've never seen before, with you know now uh, Attorney General Garland, but you know who was a judge, and then three women of color of all different ethnic groups um, coming together to to be right underneath him. Part of what happens with the Department of Justice and policing is I I found that if you want to make transformative change within police departments, consent decrees are handed down from the Department of Justice under the Trump administration. There were zero. Under the Obama administration, there were more than we had ever had. Under the Biden administration, I expect that number to pass the Obama numbers, not just because there's a focus on policing, but because there's literally a backlog in the Department of Justice where police departments were not investigated, not just police brutality claims, but also uh, disciplinary issues and and um, and issues with promotion within police departments for officers of color And women officers, so that these are the kind of things that go under the radar. Oftentimes, that people don't focus on. You know, one of the you know everybody focuses on on Camden as you know being being one of these big transformative police departments where they essentially abolished their police department and built it anew. That came from a consent decree. You know, Ferguson, which is transformed, that came from a consent decree. So Biden essentially setting up the Department of Justice in the way that he has. particularly with Clark uh, helping to run the civil rights division. I mean, it's something that we have to focus on. Now, beyond that, of course, there there are tons of other issues. I mean, the filibuster is going to be a big issue. Thinking about the Supreme Court is going to be a big issue. Um, But of course, it is also the other thing Biden has done with his executive orders is he has set the tone and a precedent for, for resources and equity throughout the entire government. In regards to oversight, what does it mean to hire in an equitable fashion? What does it mean to focus on data and research and science? And these are things that did not happen under the last administration. And I fully expect that to send a ripple through um, life. You know, lifetime staffers. You know, pe- people don't realize. Yeah, a lot of people are, are are voted in and appointed, but there are a group of people who like this is like this is what they do, no matter who is in office. And even though they have political leanings one way or the other. They go about their job oftentimes in a very professional way, and they want to have the ability to do that. And when that happens, more equity is created, and oftentimes that means more racial equity in particular is created, along with gender equity. So these are some of the things that Biden is doing with his executive orders that people say, how are they going to matter? Well, they matter for resources. They matter for tone setting. They matter for expectations. Um, And I think we're seeing a lot of that uh, I mean in a very short period of time
0: I was struck uh, this week I, I had started out I'm managed um, um, I managed I manage a team uh, at at, uh, at CQ roll call that focuses on the leadership uh, positions in Congress and I picked up uh, uh, a, a stray reporter this week who covers Justice Department and criminal and criminal justice and so forth, and uh, because somebody was on vacation, and this reporter, you know, he and he and I were working on the um, what's going to happen with the the AAPI Asian American Pacific Islander Hate Crimes legislation uh, that passed the House. When I first saw that the Senate was going to bring it up, I thought, oh, you know, this sounds like, you know, it's sort of politics is normal. They'll bring it up, somebody will block it on the other side, and then they'll say, like, well, we tried, you know, and then move on to the next thing. And then this extraordinary thing happened where uh, Democrats and Republicans said, like, yeah, we're going to work on this legislation. We're going to bring it to the floor. We're going to agree on a set of amendments. (laughs) Uh, and, and, you know, one of the bill's sponsors, uh, Maisie Hirono, uh, the lead sponsor in the, in the Senate, said, well, I understand that some of my Republican colleagues don't like this thing, so I'm willing to debate that and maybe, you know, you know like alter it in order to get the legislation passed. And I'm like, what is happening? Legislation is happening? Do you think this is part of that, that tone setting where there's a ripple effect and people are like, oh, wait, we can act like professionals here in Washington now?
1: You know, I think it would be nice to think and hope if that was the case. I tend to think it's a couple of things going on. I tend to think the first big thing is, of course, there's been um, a lot of attention on uh, the hate crimes that the Asian-American and Asian Pacific Islander community faces, and rightfully so. Um, And I've written about this uh, in particular about how what happened in Atlanta was was definitely a hate crime. I mean, yeah, there might have been other things going on as well, but it was clearly... Hate motivated, particularly against Asian women. Um, But the other thing is that getting back to our discussion about empathy, we have to think about who Mitch McConnell is married to, and that there is a level of empathy there that I think um, may extend to the Asian American community that doesn't extend uh, as far as it should to the Black community. And I think there is evidence for that. I mean, for example, we know that Asian-Americans who were impacted under Japanese internment received reparations in the 1980s. Um, H.R. 40, which came about immediately right after that in 1989, still has not been heard. It's going to finally, I think, have a, at least a subcommittee vote um, this week. As as we speak, the committee
0: is uh, considering, the House Judiciary Committee is, is, uh, is, is marking up uh, that legislation.
1: So it's serendipitous timing.
0: <laughs>
1: Without a doubt. You know, I, I didn't know if it was If it was known that it was today that that we were talking today at this time and I've I've worked um, with congressional lawmakers on um, on helping to to, to push and advance that legislation as well as the Truth and Reconciliation Act being pushed by Representative Barbara Lee. And and so when we think about this, we have to realize that even though people of color are disproportionately impacted by hate, uh, health disparities and policing, that black people in America are even more disproportionately hit and that, um, that there are differences. Now, what we have to guard against is engaging in what we call in sociology oppression Olympics, where people start feuding for resources. Instead, we need to realize that, that we need hate crime legislation to protect the Asian American community. It's no question. And the Senate should be having that come up. But you know what? The Senate should also uh, bring up H.R. 40 if it passes the House, similar to the fact that they should bring up the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And what we have to ask ourselves in America is why is it that certain things get brought up for certain groups and not for others? And I think that continues to be uh, as Congressman Akeem Jeffries, as he calls the genetic birth defect on the question of race that America has that continues to plague us.
0: And you make a a very good point about, you know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate uh, minority leader, previous Senate majority leader, he's married to Elaine Chao um, who was born in Taiwan and, and, you know McConnell has been the target of a lot of uh, ire from people on the far, far right, um, you know, references to his china family and, and I mean just overtly kind of racist things. but it, it's all and I, you know for whatever sometimes you get the right, you know the right you know legislation or the right movement for, you know, <laughs> maybe not the most ideal reasons would that everybody had, you know some sort of moment where they can they have a uh, personal, it has that sort of personal effect on, on them. Um, so I, yeah, I, when, it, when it comes to these sort of legislative, uh, you know, vehicles, I don't, I don't know if all of them are going to be fortunate enough where somebody will say like, as a, as a husband of an Asian American woman, you know, which McConnell said yesterday. Um, I also, I mean, before we, um, before we start to wrap up, I, I, I also just wanted to ask you about like how, Georgia and and voting rights uh, you know the Senate is going to begin at least at the committee level looking at uh, HR one they're calling it s1 uh, which is the sort of expansive overhaul of, of voting rights and and guaranteeing ballot access and so forth um, you know we've seen we see these sort of backlashes in our history uh, where you know in 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 the Jim Crow era and in you know in the post-civil war time we had you know uh, we had Blacks being elected to Congress, you know, from the Deep South, <laughs> from Mississippi, uh, you know, uh, and and uh, and then you know a, there was just this huge backlash, uh, and the South, you know, like sort of clamped down on those. Are we in danger, absent something HR one and S one, of that happening again? Is Georgia just like the tip of of what might what could happen in voting restrictions?
1: Yes, and I would say is. It's not just what could happen, It's I think it's, it's happening. Um, you know, look, the, the bottom line is this, when racial equity is being pursued, people who have benefited from racism are oftentimes the ones who start to feel the most depressed because they start to realize that the privilege that their skin has afforded them, not just economically, but socially and culturally, are going away. And that's what a lot of this is about. I mean, as you mentioned, there is a continuous backlash. I mean, if we look at the civil rights era, one of the big things that people oftentimes miss is that that was the time period when the most Confederate statues were put up around the country, Uh, whether that be at at schools, whether that be at government buildings, whether that be at military bases. There was a response to desegregation. And right now, not just in the state of Georgia, but around the country, we are seeing this in well over 40 states. I mean, we might as well stay pretty much the entire country. And, and I've written about this in Washington Post and in Brookings. Uh, personally, I grew up in Atlanta, I grew up in Stone Mountain. Like I know this legacy very, very well, which is why I mentioned the Confederacy and remember as a kid having a myriad of experiences uh, with my mom centered around race and racism. And so the big thing people need to realize about Georgia. Is similar to how we had a great migration to the north um, roughly about a a century ago. We've had a return migration to the south. And over the past couple of decades, which pretty much coincides with, I guess, three decades when I left um, Atlanta and went back to Tennessee, is that the the black population in the state of Georgia has increased from about one point eight million to three point five million. That's not that's just black people. That's not even including the growth among Latinos, the increase among Asians, the also increase among college educated whites and more progressive whites who, has moved, who have moved into that area. And so Georgia is now purple, similar to the way Texas is technically purple, similar to the way North Carolina is purple. And if you look at just those three states, but there are others, the level of... Uh, gerrymandering that is happening the level of voter suppression that is happening, and this is what people are paying attention to now. this is I think the power of being able to circumvent mainstream media with various outlets um is that people are starting to recognize that all of this is being done under the guise of legality and legislation, and so these are the sort of things that 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 we that have to be fought because this is why um The legislation that we're talking about around voting and what happened under COVID doesn't just benefit Democrats. It doesn't just benefit people of color, low income people. It benefits everyone, Republicans, white people, particularly elderly people in rural America who, mind you, have been engaging in some of the same activities that they're trying to restrict, whether that be about, you know, absentee voting and this sort of thing. More Republicans voted in this election than we've ever had before. Like, it just so happened that Donald Trump came in second and not first because Joe Biden got the number one number of votes, beating, of course, Obama in 08. So Republicans are going back to this same um, playbook of trying to reduce the number of people who come out to vote because that benefits them instead of realizing that right now, even among the Democratic Party, there are significant fissures among it. And part of the way I think about politics is that politics aren't simply linear, going from conservative to liberal or, you know, Republican to Democrat. Instead, it's more circular. So what, what that means is that people can tip over to the other side and we're starting to see that as more black people are starting to talk about the Democratic parties and for them, they haven't done enough. And, and of course, since we have a simplicity two party system, they're looking at Republicans, particularly on a local level and even even on a federal level. I mean, we have to realize that, that Donald Trump still got and of course, it's a small percentage, but much more of the black voting people thought that he would, given everything that's going on. And so instead of Republicans trying to carve off new voting blocks, they're going back to a continuous old school method of trying to reduce the vote. And the bottom line is that everyone should have the right to vote, no matter who you are um, in the United States of America. That is what our democracy is built upon.
0: I think that's a good uh, spot to wrap up. Um, Dr. Ray, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me anytime.